0: I want to say welcome to everyone and thanks to our speakers and our special guests who will be introduced soon. Um, First, I want to give everyone um, general information about how we're going to run the Zoom. If you want to have your videos on, we would love to see your faces. Uh, We're going to be able to use the, the raise hand function, so everyone can ask their own questions or you can type your question in the chat if you'd rather not come on the mic or on the video but please feel free to ask, ask any questions at the end or just type them during, during the program as well. Um, this is being recorded so we can share with our overseas uh, members so they can hopefully hear about everything going on. And myself or Heather will be the people kind of moderating this. Um, if, if you use the raise hand function, I'll call on you or if you have a question in the chat, um, I'll be able to read it out with Heather's you know, feeding them to me. And also we want to remind everybody, once you finish speaking, please put your, your mute back on. And Master Bonnie, since you were here, I did want to let you do a, say hello if you would like to say hello at all.
1: Sure, I'll say a quick hello, since this is really your show. Um, I'm sorry I'm not on screen. I'm, I've had a very busy day, so I'm just kind of relaxing now. Looking forward to a nice conversation, but just wanna thank you, uh, Amber, for putting this together and your team and looking forward to future events with this working group. Uh, So thanks for doing this and uh, we'll turn it back over to you.
0: Great, thanks. So first I wanna give you guys some quick bios for our illustrious speakers. We have (laughs) Debbie Stutter, she'll be our, our first speaker for today. During her 39-year career, Debbie, a Malaysian, has worked with diverse communities and activists to engage states, IGOs, and other stakeholders throughout Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Americas on human rights and justice. Her work is focused on the thematic priorities of business and human rights, atrocity prevention, and women's leadership. In 1996, She founded Altsean Burma, which spearheads a range of innovative innovative and empowering human rights programs from its base in Bangkok, which includes Autsian's ongoing intensive leadership program for diverse young women from Burma, which in the past 24 years has helped strengthen and expand women's leadership in conflict afflicted zones, uh, zones. She was secretary general for the International Federation of Human Rights from 2013 to 2019, and works for a number of amazing organizations to this day. Next, we have Ariel Zarate. Ariel is a licensed social worker and a global mental health specialist working with displaced persons, survivors of torture and trauma and traditionally excluded populations. Her work is centered around systemic inequality and improving holistic wellness through community-driven interventions, advocacy and research. She worked in South Sudan until 2015, partnering with survivors of sexual violence and returned child soldiers to establish community-based mental health initiatives. She also worked for the International Rescue Community Survivors of Torture Program, developing legal, mental health, and psychosocial case framework care frameworks and providing direct clinical care. Most recently, Ariel worked for Humanity and Inclusion in Cox's Bazaar to address mental health needs of older persons and persons with disabilities from the host and refugee communities. And she currently supports suicide prevention initiatives in Cox's Bazaar <laughs> as the co chair of the Suicide Prevention Subgroup. She is additionally a WCAPS Pipeline Fellow and is supporting the establishment of an MHPSS-focused subgroup in the Global Health Working Group. And finally, we have a special guest, Wei Nu. Wei, Wei Nu is, was a Rohingya lawyer, was a teenage political prisoner at the notorious, insane prison. She was 18 years old when she was jailed and served seven years before being released on the mass pardon in 2012. She is founder of the Women Peace Network, Arakan Justice for Women and the Yangon Youth Center. She is currently based in Washington, D.C. on a fellowship. In 2014, Wade received the, the In Peace Award. In 2015, she was named one of the Top 100 Global Thinkers by Foreign Policy Magazine. In 2016, she was named one of the Salt of Diego's 100 Inspiring Women by Salt Magazine. In 2017, she was named one of the Next Generation's Leaders by Time Magazine. And in 2018, she received the Hillary Clinton Award from Georgetown University. So, as you can see, we have an amazing group of people here to speak to everyone. So, I hope you all, you know, have your questions ready and are ready to interact with them. Debbie, I'll turn it over to you.
1: Thank you so much, Amber, and thank you so much uh, to the um, uh, to. How, what's the what's the snappy acronym? How do you pronounce WCAPS? <laughs>
0: We caps is usually it's usually how we say it.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, well, good evening to you. Uh, it's morning over here in Bangkok. And I just wanted to share um, uh, my screen. Uh, just share two PowerPoint um, to two slides with you to give you a little bit of a context. Um, now, uh, what uh, what we've seen uh, since before we before we reach first of February 2021 the coup we need to understand that last year there were a thousand and twenty four attacks on civilians and incidents of military violence where so it's either, where civilians were either attacked or where they were injured or displaced as a result of conflict where the military failed to avoid hurting them. And uh, these incidents took place in 10 out of the total of 14 states and regions in the country. So 10 out of 14 states in the country were affected by conflict in which civilians were either targeted, in some cases with helicopter gunships, or injured and displaced as a result of armed conflict. And um, uh, during February and March in the first two months of the coup, which is still not a complete coup, um, and this is why the violence is escalating, the junta launched over 700 attacks on unarmed civilians in urban areas, killing at least 536. Today, the figure is closer to, to over 700 and um, about 3,000 politicians, activists, um, labor organizers, journalists, and other uh, protesters have been arrested. Uh, last week, our colleague of uh, Weiwei, a, a, a feminist activist who We and I work with for many years, Tintin Ao, was taken from her home and dragged to the uh, notorious interrogation center, um, and she hasn't been heard of since. So, uh, and a week before that, another friend of ours, Aku, a feminist activist and leader of Just Women for Justice was shot dead in Sagaing, uh, on the Western side of the country, where, um, Uh, the resistance against the junta is particularly strong. They actually set up um, barricades in the main street and um, kept rebuilding the barricade every time the military attacked. Um, And in that part of the country, farmers and peasants are actually using muskets, single loading guns uh, to defend uh, the community. Um, facing off against the army, which has been using submachine, machine guns and grenade um, rocket, uh, rocket propelled grenades, RPGs. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, this war is still going on. Um, and um, while this was happening in the towns and cities, there were also 138 armed clashes during February to March. Um, which was related to um, prior conflict before the coup. And, um, but now both these, uh, both these um, elements are merging. We're starting to see that because the democracy, the, the urban based democracy movement is overlapping with ethnic, uh, or ethnic communities who have been resisting the military. And, um, and, and this is where we are actually, basically, we are looking at one giant civil war instead of little civil wars uh, spread out on the border areas. So um, we need to understand that uh, from 2011 to 2020, the number of attacks on civilians in conflict zones rose by 143 percent within nine years. And that corresponds with a hundred and eighty percent increase in military funding. In the net na- you know, in the and this is military funding in the national budget, which is separate from the military's income from drawn from military conglomerates. The biggest corporations in the country are actually military owned or uh, or controlled by the military. So um, in 2020, what we have to understand is that those attacks took place in the midst of a pandemic and military, the Tatmadaw, the military attacked health workers and and this this time, in the past three months, they've, in the past two and a half months, they've actually been killing health workers in the streets. Um, but they attacked health workers in ethnic areas, um, dismantled ethnic health outposts, and blocked aid. And on top of that, shut down ethnic language internet websites, which uh, for many communities was a main, the main source of life saving information. So why is is the military escalating violence? The junta has essentially launched parallel wars against the people of Myanmar, Um, and um, they are escalating violence to gain political and economic control of the country. What happened was even though the military prevented elected members of parliament from entering the actual parliament, the um, the m- members of parliament representing 76%, yeah? 76% of the elected members of parliament actually for- swore themselves in and started having um meeting online uh, to form the committee representing this piedang Soluto, which is the national parliament. And, uh, uh, two weeks ago, they announced, the, they abolished the 2008 constitution, they announced the establishment of a federal democracy charter, and um, we are, we are, and they are going to announce a national unity government, which has, uh, in, in partnership with ethnic organizations so we are all waiting because every we're going like when is it when is it and they're saying tomorrow tomorrow very soon very soon but what we what this means is even though the junta grabbed power in the main in Nepidor and rangoon and the main areas and they're trying to keep control of those areas the the civil disobedience movement and the strike and the general strike committees around the country have essentially brought the economy to the brink of collapse. Um, what has really helped to that process is that the military um, import they've cut off the internet. So the majority of businesses and people depend on mobile phone data to do their e-business. Um, the, the banking system has collapsed because the military actually purged the central bank of Myanmar. Um, so, and, um, and the military has actually imposed martial law on the main economic zones around Yangon. In fact, the industrial zones of Shrepita and Langtaya were the scenes of, and South Dagon and North Okalapa were the scenes of massacres. So about a hundred thousand workers who um, it is estimated that 100,000 workers have actually fled Yangon and returned to their home city, home villages, because um, they are so afraid for their lives. So we can already start to see that um, this is happening. And, um, and what has made things difficult, what, what, what we have to also understand in this picture is that for feminists, who have been fighting impunity for military violence um, in Burma, particularly military violence targeting ethnic women and and and, and most most um, obvious most um, horrifically the violence that was inflicted on Rohingya women uh, between 2012 and and since 2012, we would. we we can already see that women, to women, this is not utterly surprising that this has happened because for many feminist activists, they have already been feeling this pressure over the years. Even when the country opened up, the Ta'am women tried to launch a report on impunity for violence against women in Yangon and there, under the democratic government, their launch was shut down. During the peace process, where women invoked the women, the UN Security Council resolutions on women, peace, and security, uh, to 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 insist that they 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 had a right to a place at the table, they were still rebuffed, and they were often. Um, denounced as the spoilers of the um, peace process because the peace process was was mainly focused, was mainly focused at um, economic deals between the armed group and the um, tatmador instead of civilian protection accountability, and accountability and transitional justice, which is what the, the women's movement was calling for. So, the women's movement in the country for more than 20 years have been advocating for justice and accountability. And they are seen by the military as among some of the greatest enemies. They often, uh, you know, unarmed women using UN Security Council resolutions and international humanitarian law are seen to be just as dangerous. As ethnic armed organizations, so I'm going to end on that note and um, look forward to hearing from everybody else.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that intro, Debbie. That was that was amazing, um, and that actually leads very well into Arielle's part. Arielle,
2: thank you. Um, and actually, if if um, YY is comfortable with it, I'll probably cut myself a bit short because a lot of the reflections and the perspectives that I wanted to highlight today as a person who only worked uh, in the Rohingya response and I'm not a Rohingya person was from research that I was doing from activists, which include YY. So I'm very um, happy to see you here (laughs) and excited to hear what you have to say, because a lot of the perspectives that I wanted to bring to the fore were from activists like YY, um, like Yasmin Ula, some of my colleagues who are still living within within the Rohingya camps at the moment. and so I will touch on a couple of things, but I am actually quite interested to hear what Waiwa has to say is obviously she represents her community far better than I could. So um, just to, to punctuate that piece, um, a couple of the things that we, cause when we were talking with Amber about how to center what was, what the coup could mean for the Rohingya people in terms of um, their protracted displacement, particularly in Bangladesh, um, given that that's the largest concentration at the moment. Um, It is quite interesting because a lot of what I've been seeing from individuals an activist specifically is is this rejection of the you know the white Western imperialistic reflex to speak over activists on the ground or overanalyze from this heavily Western perspective what's going on on the ground um, and try to theorize about what the solution should be or um, you know how the Rohingya should respond and I'm going to take off my earring because I think it's hitting my speaker so sorry about that um, and, and I've. I've also seen some of these um, associations between some sort of, you know, "quote unquote" poetic justice or some sort of karmic turnaround, um, because the the military is really turning the same tactics, like like Debbie mentioned, that uh, particularly ethnic minorities, particularly the Rohingya, have been very well versed in for many years against the broader community. Um, but the important piece. Has been that that's not what these activists are saying. That's not what people on the ground are wanting to focus on. Um, rather, wanting to center these ideas of unity, this idea of coming together against a you know a common enemy that, for decades, for many many decades, have been you know repeating the same tactics and doing the same things that they're now doing to the larger public. Um, and and a lot of that rhetoric has been pushed back against these spaces or or individuals where people are speaking about the Rohingya situation or what they should do or what this means for them without their voices, which again is, is why I wanna cut myself short. Um, and I'll only add that when I was speaking to individuals a bit earlier today about their perspectives, So I had a few calls um, with some colleagues of mine that are, are still living within the camps. And a lot of what they were echoing was this idea that they are pained to see their home in such chaos, right? Even when there were larger um, portions of the community within Burma who did not necessarily identify Myanmar as their home, that was never the belief or the feeling that they had themselves. And so, this idea that it would be some sort of retribution um, to watch this unfold is not something that translates. Um, one individual I was speaking to earlier mentioned, you know, they had. Um, really good reason to be d- distrustful of Aung San Suu Kyi, especially with what we saw unfold at the ICJ and what we continue to see be permitted. Um, but that the idea of having the same military, the same Tatmadaw that was perpetrating the genocide and perpetrating uh, violence against multiple ethnic minorities you know, um, for many, many years is not the solution. That's not what they were looking for. And this unity, we've seen pictures coming out of Rohingya refugees. Um, you know, replicating the three, thing, three finger salutes and the flower protest and some of these other things, um, it's really powerful trying to put unity at the forefront even when individuals from, who are external to the situation are, are trying to create some sort of division or, or complexity where I'm sure it will unfold, right? And that, and that is something that the community can handle alongside each other, but that's not what um, people have been centering. And the only other thing that I'll add is that this is all happening within the backdrop of of Bangladesh still being committed to repatriations. Um, There is still a plan to go forth with these repatriations as of June. Um, In addition to mass relocations from the camps into uh, a very unstable island called Chor, right off the coast, it's made of silt. It just kind of uh, appeared from the sea in the past 20 years. So it's very unstable. Um, There's been a lot of reports of atrocities, and uh, potentially not atrocities, but a lot of abuses, I would say, Um, and I'm I'm sure that as we get more details, we will start to see them start to qualify as that. Um, And many of these relocations were forced. They were done at, through the intimidation of the military, Um, and then there was a massive fire three weeks, four weeks ago now, which took the lives of, of thousands of people, burned thousands of homes, um, and part of the reason that this was more deadly was because the, the fence, um, the, the camps have been fenced in, in, in their entirety, and so individuals had no way to run. And they had nowhere to go, they were unable to flee, the emergency medical services were not able to get into the camps. Um, and so this is, you know, against a backdrop of, of similar human rights violations that we saw in Myanmar, with uh, limits on mobility and inability to work, and forced identification of certain kinds, being replicated, while the coup is unfolding, and so the you know the unity and the solidarity is also very much one of survival, at least in in the words of individuals that I've spoken with, that their 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 option for returning home to a stability and and a place where they can fully realize their rights is being challenged as much as anyone else. Um, and so again with that i'm gonna definitely take a step back because so i'm really interested to hear what yy has to say and um and obviously speak speak from a, a, a more informed and, and realistic place than i do so thank you
0: thank you ariel and please way love to hear from you
3: uh thank you thank you for inviting me to react on this uh, two amazing wonderful speakers and uh, it's amazing to be in all this small group, all women. Uh, I, can, I, I feel like I can be more bold. <laughs> so I'm gonna be um, I'm gonna be as bold as I can I could, um, which I learned from Debbie, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's often contradicted with her argument. Um, and you know, we always come back in in, in consensus or in agreement again. But anyway, <laughs> I'm gonna kind of uh, get—I uh, I, I, guess—separate um, uh, in in three part. Uh, one is around current uh, the Debbie's uh, initial uh, discussions around coup, and then feminist movement and feminism, women's peace and security, and then the Rohingya situations in the uh, in the camps. Um, so on the um, military coup uh, yes uh, you know Debbie has already uh, uh, provided overview and that's amazing and I, I want to highlight that the, the the involvement of women in in the movement itself is incredible so when protests began it's um, it started from the uh, from uh, from many young women labor uh, workers many workers in 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 and and other from other industrial uh, zones, so the the union workers' unions were uh, a essential part of it, and leaders of those workers' unions are mostly uh, the women and um and, and and it has started young women like Ethan Zamo and others, and then big crowds students unions, and all other people joined the movement and it's become a massive general general st- strike but uh, what we see what is incredible uh, to see is this courage of the women you uh, know so it started from this group particular group right women workers. Uh, uh, and um, labor union and as such. But then the movement has joined by like a housewife, like women mothers. Like, you know, I say it housewife because we use it in Myanmar a lot. A lot of female didn't doesn't have, do, do not have uh, jobs. So we used to describe it, but it's, I know, controversial term, but what I'm saying is mothers. Um, mothers at home, uh, you know. Uh, Joined the movement by 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 beating this pots and pans by banging pots and pans, and in different different forms. It's not just street protest, protests, but many other from forms, including this uh, sarong revolutions or um, the 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 Temeng revolutions, which is women's skirt. You know, waving flag with the women's skirt because the women's skirts or women's clothing has been um, Seen or perceived as uh, as as dirty, and uh, and we have this traditions of separating women and men clothes, especially the low uh, clothes of lower parts, and um, and um, you know there is a perceptions that uh, if because it is it's 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 uh, it's um, it is seen as dirty uh, if. There is a term called, I don't know what is that, Debbie, you can correct me. Uh, You know, like a spiritual Bone. Yeah, this spiritual belief that women, uh, if male go under this women's clothing and their uh, strength and their uh, luck will reduce, right? So all of this crazy spiritual uh, belief uh, drive the military crazy. So they were frightened by this sarong revolutions. It's happened a week or so. Women put their sarong on the street and, you know, hold them as flag and in many forms. And military eventually had to even uh, issue statement, uh, not statement, even laws, orders, directive to arrest those who are, who are going to be uh, hanging the, the sarong on the street. And um, so that's that's the power of women, and not only being involvement, they're 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 being active on the in this movement, but also the tactics that they use and these this the femininity and their uh you know these these things like the porn is being seen as like a weakness for women, right? It's been used as a tool against women to to make them inferior. Now they use this against this masculine. Uh, military, and it's been incredible to see how, uh, how women are engaged and used uh, uh, fighting against this patriarchy, and yeah, I think I want to highlight that, but the number of killings, yet the military is still emboldened, and it's become the, 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 the tactic and abuses, violence attack against the protester has become more and more serious um, every day, day by day. Um, and and up to now, I think the uh, Debbie slide was from last week, within a week now, more than 800 people have been killed. Um, uh, so a total from, according to AAPP data, it's 813 or something. So like, you know, the death toll are rapidly increasing and the number of arrests are rapidly increasing. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's going to, yeah, it's it it, it it seems like it is going to be a full-fledged civil war and we will see more atrocities if we're not going to stop it so I'm gonna stop here on that part and when it's come to women movement and and the work around women's peace and security and I know I and Debbie and many of us have been talking about this using uh, this women's peace and security framework in Myanmar to protect the uh, women, particularly Rohingya women and ethnic women, even before massive rape uh, happened in 2016 and 17. Um, but it was extremely unpopular. And lately some women's groups started to use the, the framework to leverage or to basically educate people, yet, uh, um, the, the resolution itself is very unpopular. I would say um, not many people. I guess you know not many are aware of the of the of the of the resolution itself, and and it's been a very challenging as Debbie has described. Uh, it's for for those who are knowledgeable among the government and the military, and they are very very uh, reluctant to to to, to even. Allowed to use the term women's peace and security. So right now, when we talk about this, you know, um, but until two thousand, until the February coup, you know, I must admit that you know, the women's movement in Myanmar, inside Myanmar, is pretty weak because they were unable to be bold. Uh, they were, you know, there has been so many restrictions and limitations around them, so they. I guess, you know, I'm being, just being tried to be, um, how do I say that? Yeah, try to, yeah, anyway. So uh, it's, it's, it's somehow, you know, unlike um, many others in the region, like I'm always inspired by Sri Lankan women's movement and others in, in the region, in, in Philippines uh, and even in Indonesia. But us is, we, we feel like we're very left behind. So it needs a lot of support and elevations to to boost it up um, in terms of uh, resources, in terms of technology and everything. And when it's come to the ethnic, you know, Burma problem is again, not just the military and the democracy movement. We also have, uh, because of the long lasting this uh, military dictatorship, we have another major problem, which is, uh, deep-rooted ethnic divisions uh, and aspect particularly towards the like you know darker color populations in Myanmar like uh, towards uh, Asian, South Asians, like populations and towards Rohingya. So even within all these movement, women's movement, human rights movement, the Rohingya has been extremely marginalized uh, in the movement. In most cases, they wouldn't even want to, when the Rohingya get involved in the movement. Uh, if we talk about like civil society forum or you know, blah, blah, blah forum. Women, Rohingya will be always marginalized because of this deep rooted ethnic divisions and hate towards the darker people. And that is one thing that we need to work together and need support for a long term. And I think I'm going to stop here on the Rohingya issue. Uh, Right now, what is more important is, you know, regardless of repatriations happen or not, uh, the the safety and security inside the camps itself is really a major concern and um, over 50,000 fire victims are uh, not uh, you know recent fire victims are are are, are in need of a really uh, essential support and and there is a uh, an advocacy ongoing on the on, on removing this fence but wires, uh, wire wire fences that um limit that um you know that that was a uh, obstacle or, for the fire fire victims to to escape so as a result, um, hundreds of people were died because they were not able to escape because they were being fenced. So that movement is ongoing. Sorry, I went too long, but yeah, <laughs> Debbie.
0: No, that was that was great. All three of you. That was that was great. Thank you so much um, for all of our participants. We are uh, taking questions. If you have any questions, feel free to use the raise hand function or type in the chat. Um, but just to get us started, actually. Well, you, you, cha- you completely changed my plans about what the first question was going to be because hearing about the women's involvement in the revolution is, is so beautiful. I'd love hearing about that and knowing that it's going on and using um, an item that was supposed to be used to shame women and just using it in a whole different way and taking over, I'd love that, that's beautiful. Um, so I did want to know, because um, related to that, have, have the Rohingya been able to be integrated a little bit more with the ongoing um, with ongoing movement and the and the work going on? Given you know that valves have been sidelined before, but now you know all the ethnic groups are coming together and trying to come, go against the military coup. Have they been able to become more integrated, and more involved with uh, the restoration of their country? In a way that was directed to you, but if anyone has anything to to add to that, please feel free.
3: Oh, I was reading David' message, um, the message on the comments. Could you love read a little bit again? <laughs>
0: No problem. I wasn't
3: expecting the
0: questions. (laughs) I'm so sorry. No problem. Um, Just I'm done. They will. The
3: the speaker will answer all of these questions. But yeah, go ahead.
0: (laughs) You are you are now a speaker. You're here. Your video is on. (laughs) No. Um. Just have the have the Rohingya been able to been able to integrate more with with the ongoing movement to restore uh, restore democracy to to Burma given that many of the ethnic groups are now joining together versus before they were kind of being sidelined has that changed at all
3: so you know just one thing um, for all of us to 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 i guess you know as a background rohingya were always in all democracy movement and in all political decisions until 2015 um rohingya were part of the British, uh, against the British, uh, the colonial movement, and uh, during the independence movement, and they were part of the constitutional drafting processes. And since then, we had uh, members of parliament in all the parliaments uh, in Myanmar until 2015, um, when they were completely disenfranchised. And um, and Rohingya were part of the 1988 revolutions, uh, uprisings. My father was one of the leader in organizing teachers union and in in Rakhine. And and I guess, you know, we were always there, but then when Burma, you know, gained democracy in 2010, you know, they say it, right? They gained democracy. Then Rohingya were completely wiped out. (laughs) Uh, for the past 10 years, since 2012 to now. And uh, even among, so in 1990s um, democracy movement, again, you know, my father was part of this democracy movement. He he was part of a committee called CRPP, which is similar to CRPH today, committee representing people, parliament. Uh, We only have that one in in, in those days. And my father was part of 18 political leaders in that group and 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 then within in the past 10 years you know all of these things were like wiped out and as if we don't we didn't exist and we we don't we we're not involved and we're outsiders you know and that narrative has been um uh you know popular extremely popular across Myanmar and even out and outside people didn't know the past history much right but now today the Rohingya you know still majority of us are still engaged in the democracy movement in 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 uh, you know in in, in 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 different capacity that we we have uh, we are engaging on the ground and at the international level you know in in and uh, even people um, like, you know, as as Ariel has said, people in re- refugee camps, I think, um, are, are are showing their solidarity and support for the Burma democracy movement. So, from the Rohingya side, I think for us, well, our stance is on the doing what is right thing to do, regardless of what the Burmese majority has treated us and our people. So what we stand for is on the justice. You know, we don't, um, because they were bad against us, we don't support Dong San Suu Kyi being arbitrarily arrested or overthrown by the military. And we think this act is affecting uh, against, I mean, this is uh, injustice against her, against entire country and thus as a people in in the country, we must uh, respond um, uh, in, a, in a right approach. And that's our approach. And however, you know, the, the, the coup has also give this, I guess, you know, all of this, all of that thing, uh, you know, come out a, a, a slight positive Window of people started to realize how they have treated against Rohingya and started to apologize, uh, mostly among young protesters, uh, showing their uh, 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 apology, expressing their apology and 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 regrets. Um, so so that has been a really positive thing. And um, there has been pressure against uh, CRPH and political leaderships to uh, acknowledge Rohingya or to include Rohingya in the processes. So far, we haven't seen them yet. Although, um, you know, in in, in one of the um, leaked meeting notes that the, the, the military has put up of the CRPH, they use the term Bengali and there has been debates around it. And since then they are no longer using, I guess, Bengali. Maybe they will use internally, but outside we are not using them. They are, uh, the CRPH is using Bengali anymore. Uh, They are using the term Rohingya. Uh, So that's a, that's a, some, what I'm saying is there is a hope uh, that there is, you know, we can build uh, at this point more trust and, and there is a room for discussions, and there is room for uh, push, push and pressure in uh, CRPH to do the right thing. And um, I think that's the opportunity we have now. We need to use it. And, and and I've been talking everybody inside Myanmar, friends and colleagues, allies in Myanmar and outside. Uh, we cannot just uh, ignore the, the 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 NLD and the the Burmese political leadership has. Uh, uh, somehow directly or indirectly complicit to the genocide and, and, and forget about all the past crimes and just support CRP just because they're in danger. We cannot do that. We need to hold them accountable as well by I, I questioning them.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks so much. Um, Arielle, uh, actually similar question which connects to to what Wade was just speaking about and to what you spoke about in your open. How have uh, the countries who are hosting Rohingya in, in the camps, such as Bangladesh, reacting to the coup? Are they, you know, are they working towards like an Asian focused solution? If There's things that they can they can provide or they can do because, like you said, um, Western powers always like to come in and do things. <laughs> but are there, is there anything, you know, region focused that that they are working on 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 doing? Or and also, have they seen an increase or de- decrease in in Rohingya escaping Burma since this happened?
2: That's a really good question. Um, and a really complicated question, I think. But um, two pieces to that, I would say, I mean, we saw that China still maintains a, um, a neutral non-involved stance in a lot of ways. Um, and, and right before the coup, uh, China was actually being the mediator between uh, Bangladesh and, and Burma for the repatriation focused discussions, and so I think the close alliance between the Chinese um, government and, and the, including the NLD um, continue to play out in, in the way that we see in action um, on the international scale. We haven't seen a lot of movement from the Security Council. Um, you know, there's been a lot of blocks in that regard, and so I think that continues to create a challenge um, what I can say about what we've observed from Bangladesh's stance is that, again, there's been this pretty strict line, um, at least in what we're we're being told and, and what's being communicated to us about pushing forward with these repatriations. But again, and, and similar to what Y was saying is that the, the the security situation rapidly deteriorating within the camps and the safety of the individuals within the camps in this immediate term is continues to remain. A larger crisis and a more important focus for maintaining that safety. Um, but individuals that I've spoken with in the past few weeks have brought that up in the sense that there is uh, a concern, especially in the aftermath of the fire, um, that there will not be, there will be a slow response or there will be a continued, uh, continue the government will continue to erect barriers to rebuilding those areas with the intention of whether it's relocation to Basanchar or um, pushing for repatriation along that, that June 1st or June timeline, which was previously negotiated. So at a regional level, um, we haven't seen, you know, there are different countries who have been, you know, hospitable and and accepting in various junctures, but we've seen more recently, particularly in 2020, as we've seen in other um, migration paths globally, including the U.S. on the southern border, there's been this really hard closure of borders and and in in institution of various uh, barriers, whether it's, you know, health safety checks or um, just the border being closed in general, and where we saw in the region, um, trawlers that were carrying two to 300 to 400 to 500 Rohingya leaving the camps, again, as a testament to the situation within the camps. So individuals who have fled genocide across the border um, into into Bangladesh are now fleeing again because of the context and the dire situation that they find themselves. And so that continues to be replicated, but we did see people pushing these boats back into the sea and, and resulting in, in a lot of deaths until international pressure forced Bangladesh to take them back because there was a lot of hesitance and they were, um, you know, wishing not to do that. And so I guess the, the answer that I would say is there's not, at least that I'm aware of. And, and from what we're seeing, at least, um, there is still this really strong push forward, whether it's to relocate Rohingya people, or to repatriate them, or to confine them to the point where they are forced to flee again um, because of the situation. So,
0: thank you for that very in, very encompassing your answer, even if you did, you felt like there was not a good answer for that. I thought that was very informative. Um, Debbie, uh, turning to you and actually bouncing off a little bit we, what was mentioned regarding China. Uh, so China has been a major trading partner with the NLD before. Um, I've heard they're still sub- supplying weapons to Burma even now at the military coup, but I've also read that they're also supplying weapons to a specific Northern ethnic group and oppositionist group in the North. I was wondering to know if you knew anything about that and if, if so, if that's accurate, what is, what is this role that China is playing by supplying arms to seemingly both sides?
1: Um, I think uh, thanks for that question. I think it's a, a issue of timing. Um, a lot of the weapons supplied to the Burmese Tatmadaw, the military, came from China, but actually the most significant weapons being supplied actually comes from Russia. And. Um, um, just a couple of days ago, Michelle Bachelet, the uh, UN uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, actually referred to a Syria-type situation happening in the country. the The threat of a Syria-type situation, and a lot of commentators have previously mentioned Syria for a number of reasons. But also the fact that Russia seems to be the one underwriting the military in that, in the sense that it is actually Russia that has been in the past 15 years providing training to uh, military officers. In fact, Russia is the second language, the foreign language taught at the Defense Services Academy of the Tatmador in Pien Uluwen. So Russia's been, uh, 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 Russia is the one who actually made, did an arms deal just a few days before the coup. And Russia is the one who has supplied fighter jets which have been used uh, in the past few weeks in airstrikes on Kachin state, but also airstrikes on Karen state. And Karen state airstrikes are significant because quite a number of activists who fled the urban areas has trying to seek shelter in Karen controlled territory. And because of that, this area has been subjected, civilians in these areas are being subjected to airstrikes The military has also um, uh, uh, threatened to launch airstrikes on Shan State, which is in the Northeast. So when we talk about China and Russia, we also need to understand one thing. The military junta paid millions of dollars to a Canadian lobbyist called Ari Ben-Manashe. And in order to uh, push for for engagement for the international community to recognize the junta, which incidentally is illegal under its own laws, under its own constitution. They broke their own constitution when they held this coup. Now, uh, one of his key talking points uh, to Japan and to the and to the West is that um, you must engage with the junta in order to contain China, and China was closer to the NLD than to the military. So basically, the idea is to push for um, the West uh, to accept the junta uh, because it's a way, it's the only way they can contain China. China itself has been flying around the region, trying to persuade ASEAN, the Association for Southeast Asian Nations, to adopt a stronger position. So China is a muscle-bound giant who is unable to be agile to say, We stand on the side of democracy because, obviously, that would have serious domestic implications. So they understand that the military junta is a massive destabilizing force in the region. And China's interest will not be secured in the face of this instability. So we do need to understand that. And in ASEAN, we have repressive regimes who also do not want to be seen as pro-democracy. Uh, even Malaysia, that claims to be pro-democracy, deported a thousand Burmese uh, in late February. They actually um, took all these so-called un- illegal migrants and handed them over to the Myanmar Navy to take them back to Burma. And those people would have been, should have been considered. Potential asylum seekers when the coup happened. So this is the kind of stuff that's happening in the region. So if we want, um, if we want um, a solution, the solution, actually, is several ASEAN countries are hoping that the U.S. will lead the solution. And this is something we have to understand. The, the ASEAN is just ten countries, incredibly rich incredibly influential but not willing to exert their power and so uh, because they don't, they're not united, they don't agree ideologically or philosophically with each other when it comes to dealing with crisis. They are all hoping that the crisis will resolve itself. But if since the crisis won't resolve itself, they need to be able to work with the US and the UN Security Council to get something to de-escalate the violence because In the face of COVID, in the face of this, we are actually going to see a huge amount of um, refugees and asylum seekers. We're already seeing 20,000 within a couple of days Um, and that's expected to be even more because we are seeing people flee to India, to Bangladesh, to Thailand. Um, So I think um, This is a case where certain ASEAN states are actually hoping that the US will take some leadership, they're hoping that the UN Security Council will take some leadership. Um, And they were hoping for that leadership to take place in March when the US was was holding the presidency of the Security Council. This month it's a, a dead zone because Vietnam is ultra conservative and doesn't want to be involved. And also, the thing is that Vietnam, Vietnam state, uh, the Viet- Vietnamese state companies are engaged in, um, in business deals and joint ventures with the Burmese military companies. So they have a vested interest when they talk about de-escalation of violence or resolution, they actually mean that the military should kill as many people as possible and frighten everybody into submission and then they're in control. So we do need to actually see, um, for example, uh, uh, even when we're dealing with EU, with the European Union, with ASEAN and so on, they are actually going to take the cues from US policy. So uh, even if we talk and so this is where um, women activists like We Nu, like Tintin A, who was taken last week, um, um, and, and the rest of us are really pushing for the U.S. to be much more principled on this um, and, and to take that role, but also to work in order to push for the U.N. Security Council to send a delegation to Myanmar. And in this case, it can be something that's done in partnership with ASEAN, um, um, so that ASEAN has a little bit of face. <laughs> they don't lose, completely lose face on this. But the reality is that we do need action to start happening from New York and from Washington, DC.
0: Thank you so much, Debbie. I think a lot of people were probably wondering exactly what you just spoke on, so that was really great. Um, we are getting towards the end, so if anyone has any last questions, we'd love to get uh, you know have you ask them. But I know Heather said that she had one final question. Go ahead.
1: Um, yeah, thank you, Debbie, for talking about um, actions that the international community can take. Um, but I'm wondering if you or any of the other speakers have um, information on what actions any of us could personally take to support um, the people and, and particularly maybe women um, in Myanmar. So if you could if you could tell us how we can help. Um, There are so many women activists who have been so active on the Women, Peace and Security agenda. For example, um, in Loikor, in this tiny state of Kareni, the women there actually broke so many taboos. They actually um, displayed bras and stuck men's Menstrui- uh, sanitary napkins on the face of the military uh, junta leader in their protest, saying that bras and sanitary napkins give us more protection and support than the military ever has. And that's really quite amazing, because this is actually quite a conservative community. And last week, they actually had a reverse gender strike, where all the men dressed as women and the men women dressed as men. In order to show that the society was being twisted and turned around by the military coup. Um, so, uh, um, and I know that it's because there are many women in Laikor, in that state, who are actively engaged in the um, Alliance for Gender Inclusion and the Peace Process. They are all women, peace, and security activists. Tintin Aung, who was dragged away from her home last week and who's being held in Comunicado in an interrogation center, was herself a leader in the Women's League of Burma ICC project and helped organize the International Tribunal on Military Crimes against people of Burma um, in partnership with the Nobel Women's Initiative. So one of the things, seeing as how this women, peace, and security is pretty much at the core of recaps, please, um, speak up for these women who have been targeted. Aku was assassinated on 28th of February. We were sitting down just over a year ago at dinner in her office in Sagaing. Um, we were doing a atrocity a, a prevention workshop. So we were sat down and had dinner with, her, with her, her and her colleagues and they were talking about the struggles and the challenges of pushing the Women, Peace and Security agenda at the local level. So I think um, we do need your solidarity and your collective voices to speak on behalf of these women and to actually insist that the US and all other countries where you have influence um, push, also adhere to the principles of Women, Peace and Security in this particular situation, which is definitely a situation of conflict. Thanks.
0: Ariel, would either of you like to join in, Uh, jump in on that one?
3: Um, Yeah, sure. Uh, In addition to what Debbie said, I think there are many ways that you can be informed. So first of all, I think the first step is be informed and learn uh, from you know everywhere possible, social media, online, and connecting to your friends and colleagues. Debbie, me, and many of us, right? Um, and then to, uh, show your solidarity. Uh, you know, again. Today, it's very easy, you know, to join like uh, protests and, and movement and by using your social media. Social media is one of the uh, most uh, main or the most important tool that Myanmar protesters are using today to, uh, to spread the word and to make connections and to engage among each other. Um, and thirdly, I think you can uh, write to senators and your representative on, on different bills that that uh, that are in uh, in place in, in, in the Congress, or even just ask government um, to to hold the military leaders accountable, Myanmar military accountable, and to support the Myanmar uh, democracy movement, Myanmar women, and uh, and protect uh, the people of Myanmar. Um, yeah, or you can um, you know donate your time. Uh, your skills, your money, you know, whatever you can. Everything is, at this point, uh, much needed.
2: I think I'll just um, add a couple more points. I know uh, Pratsima put in the chat the um, reintrodu- reintroduction of a bill to push the U.S. to um, Consider a genocide determination for the Rohingya genocide, which as Debbie highlighted will be incredibly important to push the ASEAN region to act more decisively. um, And, and will, you know, hopefully push other actors as well. Um, The other thing that I would say is I will put in the chat there's a a friend of mine Sharifa who is organizing a, in coordination with individuals on the ground. because of the way that funding can get caught up with humanitarian agencies and not always directly or quickly reach the individuals who are directly impacted, um, she has been putting together a GoFundMe to help provide specific uh, needs for the families, um, particularly women, um, single women um, or unmarried women with children who were affected by the fires. So whether that's you know clothing and, and food, um, pots, pans, uh, sanitary things, whatever the case may be, but try to get them more rapidly as as a person who's worked in the humanitarian sector, can I can attest to how slowly some of those things can go even in an emergency, um, and so I'll put that in the chat as well, and so consider um, any little bit will be helpful, um, and as YY mentioned, you know, time, money, and energy is always useful, so thank you.
0: Thank you so much. That's wonderful, um, and thank you to all our speakers. You guys are amazing. Uh, really appreciate you kind of helping us kick off the first uh, real meeting for the Asia Pacific Working Group for W-CAP. So We really appreciate your participation, and thanks to everyone who showed up, and you know listened to our wonderful speakers. Uh, Heather's going to post in the chat a uh, survey. Survey link. We'd love to get your thoughts about how this went. As I said again, this is really our first one, so any thoughts or ideas, we really appreciate your comments. And Debbie, Ariel, Weiwei, thank you so much yet again. Everyone, have a good night and good morning.
1: Thanks, Amber. Thanks to all the participants and panelists. Great, great conversation. Thank you. Bye. And go to altcn.org to get a monthly Ku Watch update we try to, uh, we we don't want to violate your rights, but human rights by making you read lots of human rights reports. So you can read all the summaries of all the reports in, in, in 12 pages for the month.
0: That's great. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Bye. Take care.